Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Is hate no longer working for the Republican Party? And if not, are they going to amp it up or tone it down? Uh, You know, what's their option? What's their alternative? Demographically, they're looking to get wiped out. You have a, a senatorial race in Mississippi. Mike Espy, who is black, the current Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, who is white. Neither one of them got 50% in the election. So there's going to be a runoff vote on November 27th. This could be another pickup seat for the Democrats if they can mobilize enough people in Mississippi to show up because this is a tight race. So in the process of mobilizing voters in Mississippi to vote for the Democrat, who is black, as that's happening, the Republicans are like, well, how do we get the white voters out? You know, we need, we need to get the white voters out. How do we do that? And I don't know if this was a campaign strategy that Ms. Hyde-Smith said she was talking about. You know, somebody had invited her to give a speech or something, and she said, if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. Now, you know, it's possible that in her family... And I say in her family because, you know, listening to Joe Scarborough this morning, who grew up in the South, and he was talking with a few other people who grew up in the South, and basically Eugene Robinson and a couple of others, they were all saying, you know, I never heard that expression. This this is, you know, it's not an expression that I I grew up with. Yeah, I'd go to a public hanging with him uh, as a way of saying, yeah, I really like that guy. And Mississippi is the epicenter for lynching in the United States. I mean, you know, more, more, more black people have been murdered by hanging, by lynching in Mississippi, I believe, than any other state. I've seen that in a couple of different articles as sort of a reference, although I haven't seen the actual um, the numbers, so I can't assert that absolutely. But this is the Deep South. This is where it was going on. So even if she used a phrase that she heard from her weird uncle when she was 15 years old and thought, oh, that's a cute expression, and just started using it, never really seriously thinking about it. I mean, that's the most benign explanation, right? When she was called out on this, particularly since her opponent is a black man, instead of saying, you know, that was an expression I learned when I was a kid, and I never really thought about where it came from, and now that I do, and now that you pointed it out, it was a terrible thing, and I'm going to take it out of my vocabulary, and I'm really sorry. It would be so easy to say that. In fact, I think for most, even Mississippi voters, had she said that, it would have, oh, yeah, okay, so she's a reasonable person. Maybe I'll even vote for her. 
But see, for the white racist vote in Mississippi, she can't walk this back because she cannot afford, given that the main thing in the South in particular, but it's happening all over the country, the main thing that the Republican Party is now promoting is fear of dark-skinned people. I mean, that's, that's it, right? There's dark-skinned people coming from Guatemala and Honduras. Oh, my God, they send 5,000 troops to the border. I'm terrified, says Cadet Bone Spurs, shall we say. I mean, this is what they have to sell. And Joe Scarborough's calling it out. And meanwhile, hate crimes rose 17% in the United States last year. Anti-Semitic hate crimes rose 37% last year. I mean, that's substantial. About three out of every five targeted a person's race or ethnicity, while about one out of five targeted their religion of the hate crimes that were committed. This, by the way, is the third year in a row that we have seen an increase in hate crimes. They had been going down, which coincides with Donald Trump jumping into the uh, election race. So this guy, uh, Christopher Cantwell, the so-called crying Nazi, He's got a new video game out, Angry Goy 2, in which the hero allows the user to play as uh, Richard Spencer, the, the Nazi from Charlottesville. And in it, he says, instead of taking out your frustrations on actual human beings, you can fight the mongrels and degenerates on your computer. Use knives, guns, pepper spray, and more. Lay waste to wave after wave of three words that all have the S word in them and K a K-word that's often used as a slur to describe Jews. Another mission sees players shooting journalists at the fake news network. So here's the question. What's the Republican Party going to do? I mean, what, what do you do as a political party when your candidate for Senate in Mississippi is afraid to apologize for making a racist remark for fear that the racists will think she's not really one of them and won't vote for her? I mean, how do you continue as a political party, particularly given that the majority of babies being born in the United States right now are not Caucasian, which means that 20 years from now, 18 years from now, when those babies can vote, the majority of voters in the United States might not be Caucasian. Certainly the majority of people won't be. Now, white people have done a really good job over the last 100 years or so of keeping people of color from voting, and it's continuing right now. It's continuing, in fact, in Georgia. This is astonishing. But anyhow, what do you think the Republican Party is going to do? Do you think it's going to go away? Do you think that the Democratic Party might end up splitting in two between the progressive wing and the corporate wing, and the corporate wing might rename itself, or even the progressive wing rename itself, and just the Republicans have reached their Whig moment, you know, the Whig Party. The Federalists melted down during the Jefferson administration. In the early 1800s, 1801 to 1809, the complete meltdown didn't really happen until the 1820s. The Federalist Party basically died and was replaced by the Whigs, which was another big corporate, wealthy white person party. And then they were replaced in turn in 1856 by what's today's modern Republican Party, but it was at that point in time an anti-slavery anti party. Abraham Lincoln was its first elected president. And then, of course, the Republican Party got taken over by the rich again in the 1870, late 1870s, killing Reconstruction. So what are they going to do? Now, consider this. We, we've been talking about Georgia. 
And today was supposed to be the deadline for the 159 counties in Georgia to certify their results. But U.S. District Judge Amy Totenberg, and this is why judges are so important, which is why right now Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are trying to pack the federal judiciary, not with good people rated by the American Bar Association, but with people who have passed the bar, lawyers, in many cases, even with no legal experience. They haven't even tried cases like Brett Kavanaugh. He worked for George W. Bush for a couple of years as a hack supporting torture in Guantanamo. He went from that right onto the U.S. District Court, or right onto the Appeals Court for Washington, D.C., and from there right to the Supreme Court. Never even tried a case, right? But the Federalist Society liked him. This is why judges are so important. Anyhow, this judge said, hey, you can't do this until Friday, even though today is the deadline, Tuesday. And she said, you must immediately establish and publicize on your website a secure and free access hotline or website for provisional ballot voters to access to determine whether the provisional ballots were counted and if not, the reason why. So somebody's paying attention to the fact that the people who got purged by the candidate for governor, Brian Kemp, the people who got purged had to file provisional ballots. And she's now saying, you have to reach out to them or at least provide an easy means for them to reach out to you. That's not happening, however, in Chatham County, Georgia. Chatham County is 52% white, 40% black, 5.4% Hispanic. This is one of the largely African-American counties in the state. They mailed out their absentee ballots with a return address printed on the envelope. The return address was a non-existent address. So all the people in Chatham County who early voted by, by mail-in ballot are getting their ballots back in the mail. They're not being counted. The post office is returning them. I mean, this is how nuts this is. And again, in the United States, the state of things, in Chicago, Jamel Robertson, he was a 26-year-old security guard working at a bar. The bartender threw a guy out of the bar. The guy came back with a gun. He shot the bartender, shot two other patrons. Jamel Robertson grabs this guy, takes him outside, gets him down on the ground with his knee on his back, and is holding a gun to him because Jamel Robertson was the security guard for the bar. The police show up. And the first thing they do as people are yelling, he's security, he's security, and he's wearing a bright vest that says security on the back. He's black. He's holding a white man down who is shooting up, who is shooting up a bar. The police pull out their guns and kill him. I mean, what are we doing in this country? How do we wake ourselves up from this stuff? How do we wring it out of our body politic? And what is going to be the fate of the Republican and Democratic parties in this context? A lot going on here. And I think the biggest question is, will the Republican Party ramp up the hate? They got an election coming in two years. And Donald Trump's probably going to be at the top of the ticket if he's not impeached or doesn't resign. And the wild card, of course, is Robert Mueller. Is that going to happen? Are they going to ramp up the hate or are they going to figure out some new boogeyman to scare us with? Which I guess would be ramping up the hate anyway. Right? This, is, this is basically all they have to sell. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, hey Morris, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Hey, Professor, if, uh, we all can whine and complain about what's going on. Now, how do we change this? 
We've got to turn it over to the young people. Myself, I'm be 65 this year. I don't trust anyone over 25 because we've been conditioned programmed beyond our control. Turn it over to the young people. Let them drive the bus, and I think they're going to do a good job. If we just get get out the way, get out the way. I'm talking about let the progressives take over, not them corporate Democrats, which is a greater threat to democracy than what the Republicans are doing, because they're the ones that got their foot on the throats of the people. When the people try to speak, they don't fight for the people. They don't fight against voter suppression. They don't spend money to support progressive candidates. So I think that's a greater threat, in my personal opinion, than what the Republicans are doing, because they'll tell you that they're the devils, and they are. But the Democrats put on this veil like, hey, we're going to be your voice but they're not. We're going to be a vehicle, but they don't do that. So anyway, what we got to do at the end, just turn it over to the young people. And if you're 25 years old or older, get out the way. Yeah, well, look at all the young people who, I mean, from city council to school board to county clerk to, I mean, all different kinds of, at all different kinds of levels, lots and lots of young people have jumped into this election race. And Morris, I see you just hung up. I was going to ask you what you meant by we should look out if there's ever a Republican who's grown a pair. I'm not sure that the party can be resuscitated, but there's all these Republicans. I mean, they've all gone to MSNBC, right? It's Nicole Wallace and Joe Scarborough and David Jolly and all these other guys who are basically old line Republicans. They're the Republicans who want to privatize Social Security. You know, I mean, it's just fairly straightforward stuff. You know, the Joe Scarborough Republicans, they want to cut social welfare programs. They want to cut programs that lift people out of poverty. They don't believe in free health care. They don't believe in free education. They're Republicans. They've fled their party because of Trump, but they still hold these right-wing ideologies. And now they're all over MSNBC. They're all over CNN. And where are they going to go? The kind of Jeff Flakes of the world, the Bob Corkers of the world, they both wanted to privatize Social Security. They're not great liberal heroes. They're Republicans. What's going to happen? But this question about the Republican Party, and the Democratic Party for that matter, you know, what do you see as the future of these parties? If you've got a political party, and this is the problem that the Republican Party has, if you have a political party whose predicate to existence, whose reason for existence has, over the last 50 years anyway, certainly since Reagan, I mean, you could argue that this goes back to battles in the Republican Party that Teddy Roosevelt ultimately lost when he wanted to run for a third term and ended up starting the Bull Moose Party. And Taft sort of picked up the Republican progressive mantle, but really didn't run very far with it. But you've got a Republican Party that basically is committed to wealth and power, period. I mean, you look at the legislation that the Republican Party passes, and it's deregulating industry, so we get more poison and more pollution but they have higher profits and it's cutting taxes for billionaires and you know, the top 1%. It's just that simple. And they're making up all these excuses about, oh, you know, no, no, the tax cut's gonna pay for itself. No, it didn't pay for itself. Corporate tax receipts right now are down 17%. So you've got a political party that has, you know, they've lied to us over and over and over again about what they're really up to. The whole trickle down thing has been so discredited even the Republicans didn't believe it this time around. Yeah, McConnell and Ryan and Trump were all out there going, yeah, this thing, we're just going to stimulate the economy so much, we're going to grow our way out of this deficit. Nope, sorry. And bond yields are starting to go up because the government deficit is getting so high and, and people don't want to buy the bonds. And it's like, okay, what are we going to do? So the Republican Party, in order to create a governing coalition, in order to get enough people into the party, 
enough people to vote for the party that they can actually hold the political power that they need to have in order to give those tax breaks to the billionaires and in order to cut regulations for the polluting industries. They've had to pull together a coalition. So they reached out to the right-wing Christians and they said, you guys will sell your souls. You're, you're just hustlers. We know that, you know, the televangelists. We'll give you a tax break and let you engage in politics. You'll become very powerful people like Jerry Falwell was. And they're like, cool, we're behind you. So you got the, Christian, you got the hardcore right-wing evangelical Christians. They reached out to the gun nuts and said, you know, that black president is going to take away your guns. And they got them. But the main thing that they've been reaching out to, and they've been doing this outreach since Nixon's Southern strategy just overtly and explicitly laid it out, is white racists. First in the South and now all across the country. And so we've got a white racist as president. We've got a white racist as vice president. We've got a white racist running for the Senate in Mississippi against a black man and talking about lynching making jokes about it. I mean, this is where we're at. This is where the Republican Party is at. And I don't see how it digs itself out of this hole. You know, it's like the mask has been pulled off. The American people are starting to figure out what the Republican Party is really all about. And all this talk about, well, we're fiscal conservatives and, you know, social moderates and all. You know, everybody's getting it. This BS, it's just the stuff you say to win elections. It's really the party of racism and the rich. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. What, in your opinion, is going to happen to the Republican Party? And how is that going to affect the Democratic Party? And where do we, how are we going forward on this? With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Daniel in Port Angeles, Washington. Hey, Daniel, what's up? I, I want to ask you a real direct question without tying everything together, because you can do that in your mind. Is it time for some kind of an insurrection by people that aren't crazy? Well, it, dep- it depends on what you mean by insurrection. I mean that nothing's working. There's still rampant racism and rampant prejudicial uh, actions and decisions by police and their commanders and the Republican Party. In 200 and some years ago, when they decided to break from England, they had a grassroots movement, but they knew they had to do something radical. I'm not encouraging any kind of bloodshed, but thank you. I'm just trying to figure out what we can do about it. If you look at the difference between today in Mississippi and 70 years ago in Mississippi, as lynchings were actually happening, there were some white people who were very upset and unhappy about that, but they were a small minority, nobody was listening to them, and they had essentially no political power. Now you've got a situation where there's still people in Mississippi who are, in this case, 
you know, this uh, Republican uh, wannabe senator who's joking about lynching. Mm. It's not as bad. I mean, actual lynching isn't happening. But the number yeah, of yeah, white sure. people who are offended by that and who are openly and visibly and loudly pushing back, including on television, you know, Joe Scarborough this morning, is yeah. huge. I think, frankly, we have reached the Susan Sarandon moment that, you know, where she right. predicted if Trump was elected, he would uh, radicalize the country in a way that would cause progressives to stand up and fight back. And I think that's exactly what's happened. It's uh, happening, but I don't think it's happening quick enough. You know, the ship of state, it's, a, it's kind of a slow thing. You know, it's like, it's like moving a giant ship with a little trim tab. It, it takes a while. But I do think it's happening. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to shake out. And my biggest concern is, will the Republican Party, as a last resort, I guess this is my biggest fear, is when racism no longer works for the Republicans, when clinging to your guns no longer works, the NRA is losing popularity all over the country. People are loving the idea of rational gun control. When being in favor of forced pregnancy no longer works, as that happens, are they going to become the party of war? Is Trump's way out of the coming Mueller indictment, which could be coming this week? In fact, the Washington Post reporting and it's expected today. Now, that may just be Roger Stone or it may go all the way up to Donald Trump. The election's over, right? And Trump is kind of in hiding. I mean, you know, he has not been out there like he normally is. And I think it's because he's scared to death and he doesn't know what to do. And he's dealing with the anxiety by hiding out in the White House and eating cheeseburgers and watching Fox News and looking for reassurance. Sir, I'm usually like 3%. 97 people run the other way when they see me coming because my views are are pretty uh, un- I don't like to lend credence to baloney, okay, ever, since I was eight. I've been an atheist since I was eight years old. Here's the point I want to make. Trump is just continue to shoot blanks. Whatever he's saying or thinking, it changes moment to moment because he has no plan. He's got no intellect as far as running the country. So he's got to be removed immediately, and then we have to move on. We can't stop people from not liking people because they're a different color. And we can't stop the cops from continuing the lynching. But now they're doing the lynching with guns and tribunals that judge them acquitted. Yeah. No, I get all that, Daniel. And and I agree that Donald Trump is actually mentally ill. And I think that the 25th Amendment is an appropriate remedy for that and that he should be removed from office by that means. But here's my concern. You're pointing out that his racism isn't working anymore. It it does work for a percentage of the people, around 40 percent of white people, but it's not working as it used to. His fear of Muslims, his fear of Mexicans, his shout out to guns and military. None of that stuff is basically working anymore. But the one thing that, you know, and as you say, he's shooting blanks. But the one thing that the American people have always rallied around is a president during time of war. And Ronald Reagan, after Maggie Thatcher had her little war in the Falklands and saw her popularity go from being down in the 20 or 30 percent range to well over 60 or 70 percent because of that, quote, victory, that little tiny war in in an island off the coast of Argentina. Because of that, Ronald Reagan said, hey, I need to have a little war, too, um, because, you know, there was an election coming up in, in 86. He needed to have a little war. So what did he do? He invaded Grenada. And, you know, to protect the American students at the medical school who were just doing fine, thank you very much. But, you know, Maurice Bishop was the president of the country and he was a socialist. He was more like a democratic socialist than a communist. He was running the country in a, a, a socialist fashion. 
And so we invaded this little country and, and uh, you know, uh, he got his boost. And then, and then George W. Bush did the same thing in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he won re-election. And, you know, it took us a while to figure out that we had been scammed and conned and lied into those wars by him and Dick Cheney. And, uh, but it, that's the thing. It takes a while for people to figure it out. So if Trump gets us into a war with, say, North Korea, which could turn into World War III if China gets into it, or if he gets into us into a war with Iran, which could turn into World War III if, if Israel gets into it and Saudi Arabia gets into it and it becomes a regional conflagration. You know, I, I, I don't see any other real probable hotspots, but it's possible that there could be some sort of revolutionary takeover or something in Central America that he wanted, might want to intervene in. I mean, he might try to pick the least, the, the, the war that has the smallest possibility of going international and have his little war, the same way Ronald Reagan had his people find a country that he could invade and have a war that wouldn't, you know, wouldn't uh, go any farther than that. He couldn't invade Cuba, for example, because the Soviet Union would have reacted. So he went after Grenada. That concerns me. And I think, and I know, and Daniel, thank you for the call. I know that Trump thinks this way because in 2010, uh, when during the midterms, about a week before the midterms, when Barack Obama was president, Trump tweeted out that he expected Obama to start a war in order to, in order to get Democratic votes for the midterms. Catstone in Coos Bay, Oregon. Hey, Catstone, what's up? Well, I'm, I'm listening and I'm thinking it's going to be impossible to change a lot of people in their beliefs. I think about this a lot because I, for years I worked with women who were victims of domestic violence. And it seemed to me that the problem that we have everywhere and the solution to the problem, which is going to be long-term uh, coming together, is that most people do not have good self-esteem. Mm -hmm. They don't feel good about themselves. A lot of people will try and convince you that they do, like Donald Trump, but he doesn't. He has taken narcissism to a new level, and everything, everything he does, and I forget this sometimes and start thinking we can change him, but we can't change him because everything he does is geared toward getting him to feel better about himself. Right. He needs a lot of people. He thinks that's going to solve it, that if a lot of people agree with him, he'll feel better about himself, but it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And if you feel good about yourself, you don't have to worry about what John Doe does as long as he's not punching you in the face. I mean, there has to be some sort of general movement toward you've got to teach your children when they're very, very young that they're good people and yeah. they can go through life. Well, this is the, I think the main thing that is causing this younger generation of white kids to be more racially aware and conscious and noticing institutional racism and understanding things from the perspective of, of people of color uh, increasingly is that the media did a major change. And, and I credit Norman Lear for, uh, you know, the beginning of this. Norman Lear with, oh, yeah. And all, all and, in the family. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, the Jeffersons is spun out of All in the Family. And yes. yeah, and so this was Norman Lear. And these shows characterized black people not as criminals, which is how they had usually been portrayed in the past, and not as, as uh, buffoons, which is typically how they've been characterized in the past, or as singers or athletes or or dancers, but rather as normal human beings. And, right. and that 
and then you know in the 2000s you know particularly as uh, you know George Bush to his credit had Colin Powell um, had Condoleezza Rice he had people of color at senior levels in his administration and and then of course we elected a black president so the people who are growing up now who have been consuming media for the last let's say 15 years anyway maybe 20 have seen black people in the media as normal human beings and in in all regards and uh, so they're they're not buying the idea that there's something different about people at a, some core level because of the color of their skin. They're just not buying it. Whereas, you know, people of our age, you know, who grew up with this stuff, it's it's like, you know, a lot of those people, I think that's where the, the reservoir of racism still exists is in people over 30 right now in the United States. And they're calling themselves Republicans. And, 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 and they watch Fox News. You know, the average age of a Fox News viewer is 70. And so, you know, surprise, surprise, and white. So it's the it's the all white persons network. Catstone, thanks yeah. for the call. Very, very thoughtful, uh, you know, analysis and insight. Take one atom of nitrogen and bond it with one atom of oxygen, and boom, you just created nitric oxide, a miracle molecule your own body makes that fuels your cardiovascular health, keeping you vibrant. But as we all age, our bodies need help generating more natural nitric oxide. Superbeats by Human N has harnessed the power of nutrient-enriched beets and created a superfood that helps your body make more nitric oxide on its own. The core philosophy of Human N is to develop heart-healthy products for your body. One teaspoon of Superbeats daily supports your cardiovascular health and blood pressure levels, giving you natural energy without the need of a quick caffeine kick or sugar high. We're talking real. We're talking healthy, natural energy. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats and free shipping with your first purchase. Feel the 1 plus 1 equals boom effect of Superbeats. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. Our book today is Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny by Edward J. Watts. Uh, this is from the first chapter, which I think is really m more like an introduction. This book explains by why Rome, still one of the longest-lived republics in world history, traded the liberty of political autonomy for the security of autocracy. It's written at a moment when r modern readers need to be particularly aware of both the nature of the republics and the consequences of their failure. We live in a time of political crisis when the structures of republics as diverse as the United States, Venezuela, France, and Turkey are threatened. Many of these republics are the constitutional descendants of Rome, and as such, they have inherited both the tremendous structural strengths that allowed the Roman Republic for thri to thrive for so long, and some of the same structural weaknesses that led eventually to its demise. This is particularly true of the United States, a nation whose basic constitutional structure was deliberately patterned on the idealized view of the Roman Republic presented by the second century BC author Polybius. This conscious borrowing from Rome's model makes it vital for all of us to understand how Rome's Republic worked what it achieved, and why, after nearly five centuries, its citizens ultimately turned away from it and toward the autocracy of Augustus. No republic is eternal. It lives only as long as its citizens want it. And in both the 21st century AD and the 1st century BC, when a republic fails to work as intended, its citizens are capable of choosing the stability of autocratic rule over the chaos of a broken republic. When freedom leads to disorder and autocracy promises a functional and responsive government, even citizens of an established republic 
can become willing to set aside long-standing principled objections to the rule of one man and embrace its practical benefits. Rome offers a lesson about how citizens and leaders of a republic might avoid forcing their fellow citizens to make such a tortured choice. Rome shows that the basic, most important function of a republic is to create a political space that is governed by laws, fosters compromise, shares government responsibility among a group of representatives, and rewards good stewardship. Politics in such a republic should not be a zero-sum game. The politician who wins a political struggle may be honored, but one who loses should not be punished. The Roman Republic did not encourage its leaders to seek complete and total political victory. It was not designed to force one side to accept everything the other wanted. Instead, it offered tools that, like the American filibuster, served to keep the process of political negotiation going until a mutually agreeable compromise was found. This process worked very well in Rome for centuries but it worked only because most Roman politicians accepted the laws and norms of the Roman Republic. They committed to working out their disputes in the political arena that the Republic established rather than through violence in the streets. Republican Rome succeeded in this more than perhaps any other state before or since. If the early and middle centuries of Rome's Republic show how effective this system can be, the last century of the Roman Republic reveals the tremendous dangers that result when political leaders cynically misuse their consensus, these consensus-building mechanisms to obstruct a republic's functions. Like politicians in modern republics, Romans could use votes, uh, vetoes to block votes on laws. They could claim the presence of unfavorable religions, religious conditions to annul votes they disliked. And they could deploy other parliamentary tools to slow down or shut down the political process if it seemed to be moving too, too quickly toward an outcome that they disliked. When used as intended, these tools help promote negotiations and political compromises by preventing majorities from imposing solutions on minorities. But in Rome, as in our world, politicians could also employ such devices to prevent the Republic from doing what its citizens needed. The widespread misuse of these tools offered the first signs of sickness in Rome's Republic. Much more serious threats to Republics appear when arguments between politicians spill out from the controlled environments of representative assemblies and degenerate into violent con confrontations between ordinary people in the streets. Romans had avoided political violence for three centuries before a series of political murders rocked the Republic in the 130s and 120s BC. Once mob violence infected Roman politics, however, the institutions of the Republic quickly lost their ability to control the contexts and content of political disputes. Within a generation of the first political assassination in Rome, politicians had begun to arm their supporters and use the threat of violence to influence the votes of assemblies and the elections of magistrates. Within two generations, Rome fell into civil war. And two generations later, Augustus ruled as Roman emperor. When the Republic lost the ability to regulate the rewards given to political victors and the punishments inflicted on the losers of political conflicts, Roman politics became a zero-sum game in which the winner reached, reaped massive rewards and the losers often paid with their lives. Above all else, the Roman Republic teaches the citizens of its modern descendants the incredible dangers that come along with condoning political obstruction and courting political violence. Roman history could not more clearly show that when citizens look away as their leaders engage in these corrosive behaviors, the Republic is in mortal danger. Unpunished political dysfunction prevents consensus and encourages violence. 
in Rome. It eventually led Romans to trade the Republic for the security of an autocracy. This is how a Republic dies. Mortal Republic. Hey, thanks so much for your support for the Tom Hartman program. We deliver our program, of course, to commercial stations, which is how we pay our bills uh, through the revenue from running advertising. And you can learn more about those at our website at TomHartman.com. But we also share our program with non-commercial outlets from Free Speech TV to Pacifica stations all over the country. And because with the Pacifica radio stations, there's basically no revenue coming in. The way that we support our nonprofit outreach is in large part through Patreon. And, you know, over Patreon, people who support our program at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Um, people who support our program there get, you know, special little clips and there's a few other goodies, uh, behind the scenes kind of stuff. But that's principally, if you want to support the Tom Hartman program, um, that's the way to do it is to get over to patreon.com slash Tom Hartman and check out what we're doing and support our program. Thank you. And uh, on the line with us, Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. Luke, welcome back. Thank you so much. So what's going on in the world? What do we need to know about today? We're getting a little bit more clarity on a report first put out by the uh, CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., uh, led up by Victor Cha, the former Trump nominee to be the ambassador to South Korea, which has released satellite imagery of 16 undeclared North Korean ballistic missile facilities, which are continuing, according to these images, to be undergoing upgrades at those facilities. Um, this is obviously um, something that the U.S. intelligence community has been concerned with, according to sources talked to by the New York Times, which broke this story, U.S. intelligence knows about the existence of these facilities. So, um, you know, that's to say it's hard to imagine President Trump is not aware that North Korea is continuing to increase their nuclear and missile capabilities. But, of course, we don't hear about that from the president when he talks about uh, the status of the talks. And so let's step back and just say very briefly, you know, the way that the U.S. intelligence community looks at these th threats is they look at capability and they look at intent. And basically, to date, what Trump has said his uh, strategy is about is about addressing capabilities and intent. And yet we haven't really seen any proof that the capabilities are being dealt with and that at this point, uh, and we are still waiting to hear from Trump himself on this report, Trump seems to be something of a thumb in the hole, right, of plugging this leak uh, and making the claim that the way he has reduced the North Korean threat is simply by improving the relationship with Kim Jong-un and lowered North Korea's intent to use what they have. Um, and it begs the question, is Trump being fooled here? Did he um, think that Kim Jong-un, in addition to playing nicely with him and posing for photos, was actually going to follow through voluntarily in reducing North Korea's capabilities? And he simply hasn't. Or is Trump aware that this is happening and trying to fool the American people that this deal is actually actively reducing North Korea's capabilities. Or could it be a little bit of both, together. wishful thinking and, a little bit of both. and yeah. fooling and the And it could people. be that he doesn't care, right? It could be that he 
He doesn't, yeah. you know, he, he really just hopes to wait this out. And again, this is not to say that this policy was being dealt with in a holistic way that addressed capabilities and intent before Trump came into office. I, I don't think there was uh, much to point to uh, in the Obama administration strategy with regards to North Korea. You just cannot claim anymore that progress is being seen on both fronts right now. And, and, it, and it really makes us realize that, you know, let's say President Trump is out in two years, he will have solely changed the calculus with North Korea uh, on intent, just trying to use the better relationship to reduce the threat, but will have, it seems, presided over a period in which North Korea, despite all that, continued to increase its facilities. Um, and just to back up, this report says, yes, a 16 under undeclared ballistic missile uh, sites, one of them is being actively dismantled, or not one of them, an additional one is being actively dismantled. But just to give you a little bit of a scale about the facilities that are being talked about as part of these talks, amount to just one or two, whereas we now see the North Korean apparatus is much larger than that, and we've heard nothing about how the current negotiations would deal with the kind of facilities that are being, you know, unearthed over well, the Didn't the current day. negotiations just break down? Wasn't there supposed to be a meeting between... Bol- uh, between uh... Indeed. I had uh, planned to be in New York on Friday where Mike Pompeo was coming into okay. town and was going to meet with a senior North Korean leader. The North Koreans refused to send their ambassador to that meeting, saying they weren't interested in talking to Pompeo at this time. So, uh, and, and again, this <laughs> this summit, the second follow-up summit, which we had been sort of teased by the White House, we would be hearing about by now, and we would have had a date on the calendar before the end of the year. The you know trail has gone cold on that as well. So again, waiting for the president to see. I'm, I'm he, curious, he, Luke. How he's you know, respond. there's yeah. a, a number of commentators have pointed out that Trump over the last week or so has been basically hiding out. He's he's uh, you know since the election, just angry tweets and watching Fox News, and he's behaving like a depressed person. And uh, I mean, literally. And could it be that he knows that an indictment is coming? Maybe not of him, maybe of his son uh, or more of his, you know, other members of his family. But that Mueller is about to, you know, the boom is about to fall. If that happens, if members of the Trump family are indicted, um, how does that affect our relations with the world? Well, that's a lot to pick apart there. And I, <laughs> I wish I knew what was uh, around the corner because it would make my job a lot easier. I have no idea. Well, what may have been prompting this change in Trump's behavior. But I agree with you uh, that uh, I do think his tone has changed since the election. I think his uh, his displays of emotions towards those he dislikes and those he cares for, uh, the gulf there is getting greater. He seems to, I thought it was very visible when he was in France over the weekend, yep. his just complete lack of even trying to keep up appearances. There were only two world leaders that didn't attend the hand-holding walk, hand holding walk down the Champs-Élysées. They were Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. And I think uh, when the two met later on, he seemed very clear that he was willing to show affection to Mr. Putin and a grimace went around everyone else. Yeah, that was that was the one moment his face lit up, actually. Exactly. If you've seen the pictures, I mean, it was just pretty amazing. Uh, Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Tom. Talk to you soon. Great talking with you as always. Yeah. You're listening to Tom Hartman. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, 
and feeds it back to you through a free app on your on your smartphone into your earphones, uh, into your into your ears as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. You can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. Hi, for our book club today, we're reading from Bernie Sanders' new book, Where We Go From Here, Two Years in the Resistance. This is from the introduction. During my campaign for president in 2016, I stated over and over again that the future of our country was dependent upon our willingness to make a political revolution. I stress the real change never occurs from the top down. It always happens from the bottom up. No real change in American history, not the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, the environmental movement, or any other movement for social justice has ever succeeded without grassroots activism, without millions of people engaged in the struggle for justice. That's what I said when I ran for president. That's what I believe now. That's what I've been working to accomplish over the last several years. At a time of massive and growing income and wealth inequality, as our nation moves closer and closer to an oligarchic form of society, we need an unprecedented grassroots political movement to stand up to the greed of the billionaire class and the politicians they own. And the good news is we're making progress. People in every region of our country are standing up and fighting back against the most dishonest and reactionary president in the history of the republic. In state after state, they're also taking on establishment politicians who are more concerned about protecting their wealthy campaign contributors than they are with the needs of the middle class and the working people they're supposed to represent. We're making progress when millions of people in every state in the country take to the streets for the Women's March in opposition to Trump's reactionary agenda. We're making progress when an unprecedented grassroots movement elects a young African-American as mayor of Birmingham, Alabama. We're making progress when tens of thousands of Americans turn out at rallies and town hall meetings to successfully oppose the Republican effort to throw 32 million people off health insurance. We're making progress when governors and local officials announce in response to student demands tuition-free public colleges and universities. We're making progress when over the past two years, hundreds of first-time candidates of every conceivable background run for school board, city council, state legislature, and Congress, and many of them win. The good news is that the American people are far more united than the media would like us to believe. They get it. They know that over the past 40 years, despite a huge increase in worker productivity, the middle class has continued to shrink while the very rich have become very much richer. They know that for the first time in the modern history of the United States, 
our kids will likely have a lower living standard than us. The bad news is that instead of going forward together, demagogues like Trump win elections by dividing us. The bad news is that too many of us are getting angry at the wrong people. It was not an immigrant picking strawberries at $8 an hour who destroyed the economy in 2008. It was the greed and illegal behavior of Wall Street. It was not transgender people who threw millions of workers out on the street as factories were shut down all across the country. It was profitable multinational corporations in search of cheap labor abroad. Our job for the sake of our kids and grandchildren is to bring our people together around a progressive agenda. Are the majority of people in our country deeply concerned about the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality that we are experiencing? You bet they are. Do they believe that our campaign finance system is corrupt and enables the rich to buy elections? Overwhelmingly they do. Do they want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage and provide pay equity for women? Yes, they do. Do they think that the very rich and large corporations should pay more in taxes so that all of our kids can have free tuition at public universities and colleges? Yep. Do they believe that the United States should join every other major country and guarantee health care as a right? Yes, again. Do they believe climate change is real? you got to be kidding. Are they tired of the United States of America, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, falling apart at the seams with roads, bridges, water systems, wastewater plants, airports, rails, levees, and dams either failing or at risk of failing? Who isn't? Further, a majority of the American people want comprehensive immigration reform and a criminal justice system that is based on justice, not racism or mass incarceration. Today, what the American people want is not what they're getting. In fact, under Republican leadership in the House, Senate, and White House, they are getting exactly the opposite of what they want. The American people want a government that represents all of us. Instead, they're getting a government that represents the interests and extremist ideology of wealthy campaign contributors. They want environmental policies that combat climate change and pollution and that will allow our kids to live on a healthy and habitable planet. Instead, they're getting executive orders and legislation that push more fossil fuel production, more greenhouse gas emissions, and more pollution. They want a foreign policy that prioritizes peacemaking. Instead, they're getting increased military spending and growing hostility to our long-term democratic allies. They want a nation in which all people are treated with dignity and respect and where we continue our decades-long struggle to end discrimination based on race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and nation of origin. Instead, they have a president who seeks to win political support by appealing to those very deep-seated prejudices. During the last several years, I've worked hard in Washington, but I've also traveled to 32 states in every region of our country. I've seen the beauty, strength, and courage of our people. I've also seen fear and despair. I've talked to people with life-threatening illnesses in West Virginia who worry about what will happen to them or their loved ones if they lose the health insurance that keeps them alive. I've talked to young immigrants, dreamers in Arizona, who are frightened to death about losing their legal status and being deported from the only country they have ever known. I talked to a single mom, a young single mom in Nevada, worried about how she can raise her daughter on $10.45 an hour. I talked to retirees and older workers in Kansas who are outraged that as a result of congressional legislation, they could lose up to 60% of the pensions they paid into and were promised as deferred compensation for a lifetime of hard work. Bernie Sanders, where we go from here. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. And uh, by the way, uh, coming soon to Patreon.com, where we have a Patreon page that we use to fund the nonprofit stream that we provide to our, uh, our Pacifica affiliate stations at no charge. We provide our show to them. And uh, so it's, it's how you can support that if, if that's of value to you. And uh, there's going to be a new video for our Patreon uh, subscribers 
could civilization be extinct by 2026? Uh, you can only see the video by becoming a member of Patreon, which, like I said, supports our nonprofit. And also, at some point today, we're going to give away a copy of The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, the brand new edition, the third edition that just came out. Uh, geeky science alert here. Doo -doo -doo, geeky science. Breakfast favorite orange juice. This is from uh, organicconsumers.org. Orange juice tainted by glyphosate, that's Roundup, uh, threatens our health in Florida's environment. Uh, they note, in August, news broke that Cheerios, Quaker Oats, and other breakfast cereals had glyphosate in them, as did snack bars. Um, parents across the country are freaking out. Now we learn that Tropicana, Minute Maid, Costco's Kirkland Signature, and Stater Brothers Orange Juice uh, all are contaminated with uh, this car probable carcinogen, uh, glyphosate. Uh, Florida's Natural actually had the highest of all the brands. It was three times higher than the previous year's tests, according to this article from Moms Across America by Zay Honeycutt, published at organicconsumers.org. And uh, the, the statement that they made, we do not want harmful chemicals in the beverages we give our children and families every day. It sounds, it sounds like the start of a Dr. Seuss thing, but we've asked these brands to make changes and receive no favorable response. We are re releasing these test results and publicly asking again, please stop sourcing oranges from farmers who use glyphosate or glyphosate Roundup and be part of reducing the exposure to glyphosate to children. And of course, there's also the concern that this is also wreaking havoc with the gut bacteria. So... Uh, which is why, you know, they started using glyphosate in wheat about 15 years ago, and that was about the time all of a sudden I couldn't eat wheat anymore, and I know that that's true of a lot of other people, too. So, anyhow, a lot on the table here. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and about 150 uh, young people are sitting in the hallway outside of Nancy Pelosi's office in concern about the environment. The groups taking part in the sit-in are demanding that Democrats draft a climate action plan. They want the committee to include the goals of pushing a 100% renewable energy commitment, which they say will spur job growth. And this comes after the UN IPCC just published this report saying that basically we've got 12 years left. And if we go beyond that, we're toast. We are just toast. the line with us is our old buddy Alex Lawson, who is also an occasional fill-in host on this program. He's the executive director for Social Security Works. He's the owner and producer at We Act Radio, our Washington, D.C. affiliate. SocialSecurityWorks.org is the website. You can tweet him at ALAW202 or at SSWorks or at We Act Radio. Alex, welcome back to the show. Tom, thanks for having me. It is always great having you on, Alex. I always learn something from you. First, I saw the story, I think it was USA Today, about how these uh, wonderful new Medicare Advantage programs will include things like vision and dental, which normal Medicare doesn't cover. And I was like, how did these private for-profit companies, number one, get the ability to compete with Medicare on an uneven footing? And number two, how do they afford this and I guess number three, the big picture that all of this gets wrapped uh, around, you know, the frame around all this stuff is, is this a backdoor or even a front door, you know, straight up attempt to privatize Medicare? It, it appears that almost a third of all people now uh, who are Medicare eligible are, are taking these private for-profit Medicare Advantage plans and thinking that they've got something really cool that Medicare isn't offering. Um, you know, what's the reality here, Alex? What's going on? Well, Tom, you actually you you got it in one. It's a it's a frontal uh, privatization of of Medicare. That's what Medicare Advantage is. Uh, you know, they they got it by their normal 
methodology, right? They, they bought politicians uh, who gave them the ability to reach their hands into our pocket and steal our money uh, and then cut that, uh, a little piece of that off to the politicians who give them that power. Um, but let me tell you what it is, it, how it works with Medicare Advantage is they do get to offer more stuff. And, and that is why people, when they look at the benefits, you know, they look at their own personal situation, they can make a rational choice that they would, uh, they would choose Medicare Advantage. Uh, but the part that is left out always in this cell, you know, now, because uh, I, I do want uh, vision and dental and hearing in Medicare, right? There are deficiencies in traditional Medicare, so I get it. Uh, but what comes along with those as well is now with more denials than ever. Um, you know, I, I, I know you've seen the, the recent OIG re- report, the Inspector General report, that was showing that uh, there is an astronomically high rate of Medicare Advantage uh, people, recipients, who are denied their coverage. That doesn't exist in traditional Medicare. And only 1% of them challenge those denials because they don't actually know that they can. That's how Medicare Advantage, I mean. So if you, if you, if you take a Medicare Advantage program and think, oh, wow, I'm getting dental and vision and isn't this wonderful, and then you actually get sick, which, you know, exactly. inevitably happens to people over 65, eventually we all die, um, you, you eventually get sick and you actually need your health insurance. At that point, the private for-profit health insurance company that's providing your Medicare Advantage may refuse to pay for things. They may even drop your, your coverage. Do I have that right? Exactly. It's just like what they do in the non-Medicare population, right? For everyone else, we know this game really well. They take your premiums and they deny you care. It's literally the only way you can make money. You've you've set yourself up to be screwed by taking a Medicare Advantage program. Now, if if that's the case, I mean, I'm also wondering how can these companies afford to offer these benefits? And it sounds like the way that they're doing, the way that they're affording it is by basically just not paying the benefits by, by, you know, turning people down and people don't know that they can't say, no, wait a minute, you've got to pay that $3,000 for that MRI. You've got to do that. It's, you know, the, um, you know, or, you know, why do I have to pay a $500 deductible? People just don't even realize this. But isn't there also a subsidy, a backdoor subsidy that the Medicare Advantage private for-profit health insurance companies get from the, uh, from the federal government out of the Medicare trust fund? Don't we also we, you and I, people who are paying taxes for Medicare, don't we also help fund these private for-profit programs? Yeah, I mean, they have it baked into the system. They're winning uh, in their parlance, uh, coming and going, right? We're losing. They just automatically, they get more money. Uh, they, you know, Medicare Advantage was sold that it was going to compete with Medicare and the magical miracle of the market was going to bring costs down, which literally never happens because there's no magic. Um, there's just greed. So it actually costs much more. Each dollar that goes into to traditional Medicare, uh, more than a dollar goes into Medicare Advantage. So it's already baked in. It costs wow. us more. And then on top of that, they can deny claims. Uh, so they also do this, you know, a, a strategy and they have immense amount of data on us. So they are only actually marketing and targeting people who their big data firms have sold them the information saying these are the least likely to actually cost you money, right? So they, they get all of the, the data that we 
you know. So that's that's why the ads all say if you're newly eligible for Medicare, well, exactly. that would mean you're 65. That would mean you're less likely to be getting sick than somebody who's 75. And also, I mean, it's more sinister than that. There, you know, if you have a frequent uh, savers card and and a person's buying cartons of cigarettes at uh, a grocery store with that, that data is sold on the market. Uh, to these big insurance companies who use that data to be like, we're not going to do directly targeted ads on social media to that person. Uh, we're going to actually do it to the people who we see having a, a, a profile that, that shows more health there. And so if, that, you, if you belong to a gym, they're going to, and, and, and you hit uh, Facebook, you're going to see an ad for Medicare Advantage. But if you buy cigarettes, when you hit Facebook, you're not going to see a, a, an ad for Medicare Advantage. They want you to be, they want the sicker people to be, or the people who have lifestyles that would tend to cause them to be sicker. They want those people to be on traditional Medicare because that will drain the system and it'll increase their profits if they get the healthier people who they who are not make, making claims against them. Do I have that right? Exactly. And it's, a, you know, it's called cream skimming and it actually, it, it is profitable for them, but it also just, just destroys over time traditional Medicare, which is why we can't actually allow Medicare Advantage to exist. We right. need to add uh, vision and dental and, uh, and uh, hearing, hearing, and we need to uh, eliminate uh, out-of-pocket costs in traditional Medicare, and that's what we're going to do with improved Medicare for all. We have to get an understanding that allowing the private insurers to exist anywhere means they're going to destroy that system for profit. That's the way they operate. You cannot trust them. We saw that uh, with Obamacare, which, you know, gave them uh, enormous numbers of new people. And the moment they could, they turned on it and there's back to selling junk insurance. The only solution is to get rid of the problem, which is the private insurers in the first place, including in Medicare Advantage. Right. See, do you, uh, you know, it, it seems like if, if we went for Medicare for all that the private insurers would say, yeah, and be sure you have a Medicare advantage for all, too. And then they can just play the same game that they're playing right now and just slowly take down Medicare. And, and 30 years from now, we're right back where we were 15 years ago with people being denied coverage. Exactly. That's exactly right, Tom. And that's why we cannot allow Medicare advantage for all or even Medicare advantage to exist in and improve Medicare is there a, is there a movement within the Democratic Party to end Medicare Advantage? We're working on that. There are people who understand uh, that Medicare Advantage is is an attack on traditional Medicare. But you know, we also we we don't like that vision, dental, and hearing are not in there. So we right. get why people would make that choice. But when we're doing broad system reform, you know, like Bernie Sanders' bill in the Senate or the bill that Pramila Jayapal is going to introduce in the House. You know, we need to have a system that eliminates private insurance, that it ceases to exist in any form, including uh, in Medicare Advantage. And that is understood, which is why the insurers are so scared right now. Remarkable. Remarkable. Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works. SocialSecurityWorks.org is the website. You can tweet him at ALAW202. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thanks, Tom. And keep up the great work, and especially there at We Act Radio as well. People can check that out. Thank you, Alex. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right, the people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 